today doing uh, physics as opposed to administrative things. We are going to describe absorption today, which is basically the fundamental um, interaction of light and matter that the whole class is going to be based on. So we're going to start with a very simple model today. Next time we'll introduce quantum mechanics. Today our model will be purely classical. And we're going to see what we can learn about the interaction of light and matter. Okay, a couple comments before we do that. Uh, if you're using Demtroder, or if you have Demtroder, one of the equations is wrong. Uh, this is one of the equations that we'll be deriving, or at least using, next, uh, next time in class. Your pi and your new. It, somebody else commented that a lot of the slides had dots in it. And I know that sometimes I put little ellipses in equations, like when there's higher order terms or something, which I assumed is pretty obvious what that meant. But uh, if you're having problems with that, it's probably a matter of having the, the uh, Greek font there installed in your system. So. You might just play around with making sure you have the lightest version of Acrobat or whatever. If anybody figures out a fix for that, certainly post it to the discussion board or let me know. Um, has anybody noticed this problem? Has anybody else noticed this problem? Has anybody who noticed the problem found a way to fix it? Well, that's, that's the web page, is administered through a Java client. But has anybody printed this out and knows that it's correct and they didn't have that problem? Neil did? OK. Yeah, I'm, not a, I'm afraid there's not a lot I can do as far as trying to change anything. But um, let me know if you, if you figure it out. Um, OK, so we're going to do a simple model of the interaction of light and matter. For that, we need to model light, matter, and the interaction. Okay, so. We'll go through how we describe these things in the classical picture. And what that model will tell us is that the shape of a spectral line, and I'll describe what I mean by that in a minute, has a Lorentzian profile. Um, or at least it does when it's limited by the natural lifetime of the, uh, of the energy state. So that's, I hope to get at least to there. Um, we may have a chance to talk more about the absorption spectrum and how our model relates to some physical quantities, such as the uh, absorption coefficient and the cross-section of a material. Okay, So to start with, um, we're going to be talking about absorption lines or spectral lines. And it's a term that comes from sort of this simple type of experiment that's commonly done to observe the spectrum of a light source. And the idea is that if you have a light source that contains more than a single frequency of light, one way to separate those frequencies and, and observe them is to use some dispersing element. So a prism was sort of the first, or was the first dispersing element used in a laboratory to do this. Nowadays, diffraction gratings are used as well. Um, but we know that light going through a piece of glass with dispersion in it will have uh, the glass has non-parallel faces will come out with 
an angle that depends on the uh, wavelength of the light. Okay, so sending in white light, we could get sort of a rainbow of colors here at the output. If your light source has some discrete frequencies to it, then you're going to have discrete regions of the output that are, that are bright. So if you image those, what you see is a series of lines. Right? We call that a line spectrum. The reason we see lines is because we're seeing the image of a slit. If this was a circle, we'd see a bunch of circles. Right? But if we make that a slit, we can make these lines. And as the width of that slit gets narrower, the width of those lines get narrower. Okay, if the slit wasn't there, what we'd see is sort of just the light spreading out from this lamp. And all these lines would sort of blur over each other. Okay, so by putting a slit there, we can make these distinguishable. And so you might expect that as the width of this slit goes to zero, if you make that a true delta function, that these lines should be delta-like functions. If you put a CCD, for instance, across here, you might expect each line to occupy one column of pixels on that CCD. Or if you were to plot the intensity as a function of uh, distance here or angular displacement from the prism, you might expect to have a bunch of delta functions at whatever frequencies this object is emitting. Okay, that's not exactly what we have. There's some shape to that intensity profile. And we're going to drive what that is. We call that the spectral line shape. Okay, so line refers to this the shape that comes from having a slit. And because it's not going to be a true delta function, it's going to have some shape to it that we want to describe. We talk about the line shape. Okay, so what is absorption of light? Um, we'll see more next time that it's really it's a quantum mechanical process that occurs when you have a photon that comes in and has an energy that corresponds to the energy difference between two different frequency or between two different energy states of an atom or a molecule. And so it can take a, a molecule that's initially in some low energy state. And when that absorbs the photon, it gets shifted up to a higher energy state. And if it's just a single molecule in isolation, then that frequency difference corresponds to the energy level difference between two states of the molecule. If you have a whole solid or even a gas where you have a collision of atoms or molecules allowed, then some of that energy can also go into vibrations and basically heat. Okay, so that's the quantum mechanical picture, and it tells us a lot. It tells us that the photoelectric effect uh, occurs and that light is somehow quantized, and it uh, allows us to explore the different energy levels of atoms, but it doesn't really tell us much about what goes on in that interaction, or at least that, that simple model doesn't really tell us what goes on. It's just it's a before and an after, and not really very much that happens during. So for that during part, we can look to classical models, ones that don't get everything quite right, don't have all the quantum mechanics in it, but do a pretty good job of describing what goes on and gives us a picture in our head that's at least useful for um, understanding some of these things. So I mentioned there's three things we need to model. We need to model the light. And so we'll treat that as a sinusoidal electromagnetic field. Okay, so it'll be a plane wave of a given frequency. We need to model the matter. And when we talk about matter, we may be talking about um, atoms, molecules, ions. Um, 
we're generally going to be talking about or assuming that they're in isolation. They're not in solids. So they're either in gas or we'll be imagining a single molecule completely isolated. It just simplifies the system. There will be a point later on where we generalize to uh, solid materials. But if I use the term atom, um, unless I explicitly state that we're talking about differences between atoms and molecules, I'm going to use the term atom in a fairly general way that could be generalized to mean molecule as well. Okay. So we'll talk about matter, and then we'll talk about the interaction. We'll treat the interaction as the matter being driven by the sinusoidal electric field. So matter has charges. Those charges can be moved around by an electric field. Um, and so the matter itself has some, some equilibrium state. You perturb it around that, it's going to oscillate around that state. And so we'll treat this as a driven harmonic oscillator. So we're going to basically do the same math that you might do in a, a mechanics class for a driven harmonic oscillator. Okay, so let's start by looking at our light. We said we would model light as a sinusoidal electromagnetic field. So here's a sinusoidal electromagnetic field. We're going to write it out um, for the moment as a cosine function. It has some amplitude. That amplitude term includes some polarization. So that's a vector that represents the polarization of the light and its amplitude. It has some temporal frequency. So omega, whenever we use omega, that will be the angular frequency in time. We'll also sometimes talk about the linear frequency. Linear frequency we'll use either f or, or nu to represent. So omega is 2 pi f or 2 pi nu, where f or nu are the uh, linear frequencies. So the argument of this wave has an omega t term. It has a uh, spatially dependent part as well, k dot r. So r is just the location at which you measure the wave. k, we call the k vector, or the uh, propagation vector of the light. And it's a vector, so its direction is going to be the direction that that wavefront is, is moving in. And its magnitude, we can infer its magnitude from the fact that when k dot r increases by 2 pi, this function repeats. Right? So if r increases by one wavelength, the function should repeat. So k dot r has to increase by one wavelength when, or has to increase by 2 pi when r increases by one wavelength. So k has a magnitude of 2 pi over the wavelength. If we're dealing with light in vacuum, it's just 2 pi over the wavelength. If we're in some material that has an index of refraction that causes the wavelength to be shorter than that in vacuum, we have to account for that. So the wavelength in a material of index n is the wavelength in, I guess I can write this out, the wavelength in a material is related to the free space wavelength by lambda naught over n. So the k vector in a material has a magnitude that's equal to 2 pi over lambda n, or 2 pi n over lambda naught, 
can also write as n times k naught. Okay, so k naught. would be the wave vector in vacuum. Okay, I realize for a lot of you this is, this is basic review. Um, for some of you, it may be things you haven't seen in a while, so it's worth going over so we're all on the same page. And then phi is the phase of this wave front at r equals 0 and t equals 0. And that completely defines a sinusoidal wave. A couple things about this. Um, as the position increases by one wavelength, we wanted to follow a point on a phase front as it moves the time it would take for the position of a wavefront to move by one wavelength is one period of the wave. So as t increases by one period, um, k dot r would increase by 2 pi, or the position would increase by one wavelength in the direction of propagation. And therefore, if it travels one wavelength in one period, the speed of propagation is the ratio of omega over k. So the speed of propagation is omega over k. If you know omega or k and the material properties of what the wave is propagating in, you can determine the other. Okay, so that's just a definition of terms. We're not going to necessarily uh, do a whole lot with this functional form right now. We're not going to plug it into the wave equation and prove it or do any of that. Um, we're just going to use it a little bit later on. Uh, we'll consider the case that's as simple as possible, which is uh, a wave propagating in one dimension. Okay, that's easy to do because we can always just define the direction that it's propagating to be, say, the uh, z direction. And we'll assume it's polarized along x. So again, we can just define our coordinate system, since this is the only thing that we're studying yet, uh, to have its coordinate axes aligned to our wave. So if that's the case, the polarization is given by the vector, the vector component of this. And if it's propagating in, in z, k dot r is just k times z. That scalar product is just simply k times z. Now this is an expression for the electric field. What we're actually going to be trying to derive is, is the intensity of light we see at different points in that line spectrum. So we have to be able to relate the intensity to the electric field. So the intensity is proportional to the electric field squared. And the constant of proportionality looks like epsilon naught c. So if we have an optical frequency wave, then this electric field is going to be oscillating very fast, right? Too fast to directly observe. And if we were to plot the electric field as a function of time, 
that length of time would be on the order of femtoseconds. So no CCD or photographic plate, or our eye for that matter, can observe a field that's changing that fast. What any optical detector observes is the power in this wave, which is proportional to the field squared. So if I square this, this is just, uh, just a general function. I'm not going to worry too much about the exact amplitudes right now. But if I square this, I'll draw it in red. I get a function that is always positive. Looks like this red function. And because it's always positive, if I take the time average of that, I get some non-zero value. Right? In fact, if you average cosine squared, you get 1 half. So this is one. Okay, if we had if we had an electric field that was proportional to cosine, and we want to find the electric field squared, of course that's going to be proportional to cosine squared. Another way of saying this is the average of cosine squared should be the same as the average of sine squared. Right, because they're the same function, just shifted in time. Okay, so um, those averages should be the same, and I know that cosine squared plus sine squared is equal to one. Okay, so when I take the averages, each of these have to have the same value. That value has to be one half. So that may be another way of saying what you already knew, is that the average of cosine squared is equal to 1 half. And as a result, if I say the intensity is epsilon naught c times the field squared, when I take this time average, and this bracket notation means time average, when I take that time average, it's going to be 1 half of the peak field squared. And so this is the intensity in free space for a wave that has an electric field amplitude of E0. If it's not in free space, then I would use epsilon, whatever the dielectric constant in the material is, instead of epsilon naught. Well, this E0 is a function of space, or can be a function of space. If it was, say, a radio wave, you'd expect that as it goes away from its source, it's going to be decreasing. And what we assumed is that we have a one-dimensional wave here. And as a result, you could if you had some material that was, say, absorbing as it goes through. But right now, we're just modeling the light. Later on, we'll model the interaction of light and matter, which produces the absorption. So in the absence of absorption, a one-dimensional wave 
would not. Well, so this, this would be like, let's say you want to find the intensity at your detector. Okay? At your detector, there's a particular location that you're measuring the, the field at. And so you just plug in whatever value that is for z. And then this, this term is a constant, this term is a constant. And I've, uh, they would just produce an overall phase shift of this intensity pattern. Well, you'd have whatever value of E naught, you'd evaluate E naught at the position you're measuring the intensity. Okay. So I would depend on Z, and E naught would depend on Z. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, um, the intensity, also known as the irradiance, has units of watts per meter squared in SI units. So it's a power per unit area. So if you have a photodetector of a certain size and it's uniformly illuminated, obviously the bigger it is, the more power is going to be on it. This tells you how much power there is per unit area. So that's a very useful quantity. The electric field itself is not what we measure. It's not as useful a quantity. Um, it has units of volts per meter. And it's usually what we consider um, when we talk about modeling the light but not when we talk about observing it. OK, so that's the light. That was the first thing that we needed to model. The second thing was the matter. Okay, and it's going to depend on what exact matter we have, whether we have a gas, a liquid, a solid, whether we have molecular or atomic gases, um, as to how the details of the model would work out, but there's some very general uh, behaviors that we can understand. The first is that if our matter is stable, then it has some equilibrium state that it's going to start in. Right? So it starts in equilibrium, then we can know, then we know that we can uh, define some potential energy for the system. Let's say our system is a single molecule. Potential energy associated with that molecule as a function of some spatial disturbance. Okay, so for example, let's say we've got a water molecule and you stretch the hydrogen molecules apart. So you've got an H2, two hydrogens and an oxygen. There's some nominal shape to it. And you were to grab onto those hydrogen molecules and you were to stretch them. Right? It would take energy to do that. You'd be increasing the potential energy of the system. You'd be adding some elastic potential energy that would be stored in the covalent bonds. And so you'd have some potential energy that would vary as a function of how far you stretched it. Okay, so in that case, R would be a variable that would represent how far we stretch it. If we have a hydrogen atom, we might be able to take the electric cloud that's around that nucleus and pull on it, displace it away from the nucleus. Right? It takes energy to do that because the electron wants to be in the lowest ground state, which is centered on the nucleus. It takes energy to do that, so it would be adding energy to the system. Again, R would be a spatial variable, and that would be, say, the average radius of the electron cloud. And this function V of R would be the potential energy as we change that variable. Um, 
So we could plot some function, the potential energy, of the, as a function of some parameter. And at equilibrium, the potential energy would be at a minimum value of that parameter. Right? That's what it means to be at equilibrium. Okay, so here are some of the different types of, of matter we might be dealing with. We might have a molecule, like the water molecule I described, where there's some geometry to it. You can stretch it, or torque it, or twist it. Um, do something to the geometric shape, basically, which is disturbing the covalent bonds there. You might have an electron cloud. Here's a p-orbital electron cloud, and you can pull it, twist it, do things to that. Or you might have a bunch of um, particles with spin. So say the uh, quantum spin of a particle will tend to align to an external magnetic field. That external magnetic field may come from the material itself. So say the nucleus produces an ex a magnetic field, and then the electron tries to orient itself to that. Or it may be truly external, a magnet or something applied to it. Well, those molecules these uh, particles will try to align their spin to the magnetic field. And if you apply a torque, you can disturb them from that equilibrium, and they'll want to move back. So in all three cases, we have a situation where we can disturb the molecule from equilibrium. Okay, so for our model, what we'll do is we'll just treat our matter is being, say, a positive and a negative charge, and we're going to try to pull them apart. Okay, the model would hold for any of those different types of, uh, of molecules or atoms that we might want to study. This is just a simple one to understand. That might be a good analogy for the hydrogen atom, trying to displace the electron cloud from the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. Okay, well, there's some potential well V of I'll call it V of X so now we'll consider these things in one dimension where we can stretch them in the X direction and I know that there's some equilibrium position X naught then if I pull the system to a point away from equilibrium, it's going to be pulled back by its internal, its internal forces. The force pulling it back is just the gradient of the potential energy. And since this is one dimension, that's just minus uh, dv dx. Okay, so the slope of this curve tells us how strong the force is, the restoring force, the spring constant. Now, if I'm down here at equilibrium, I want to talk about how strong the restoring force is. For small displacements, the first order term, the restoring force is zero meaning the slope of V is zero. So I need to consider a second order term. So let me write my V of X 
as some value at x naught. So this is v of x naught. Plus, and I'll just do a Taylor series, v prime of x evaluated at x naught. Or I can write it as v prime of x naught plus 1 half v double prime at x naught times. I need to multiply it, yep, times um, x minus x naught. And then this Taylor series obviously can go on forever. Yeah, thanks. OK, so at equilibrium, what do I know about this Taylor series? Second term is zero. Second term zero. Right, good. This is just a constant energy that doesn't change as a function of position, so it's not interesting. So the first term that's interesting is this one. And so for small displacements, I can always assume that the uh, lowest order term is the largest. So this will be the largest and most significant term that's dependent on position. And if I take the derivative as a function of x, I get uh, the force as a function of x. That's 0. This is 0 because the term is 0. And then this one is just uh, v double prime at x naught times x minus x naught. So that's just the um, restoring force of the spring. And that's what's written up here. And I've written it up here explicitly with a minus sign just to say that it's pulling back towards equilibrium. And the way I've written it here, um, this second order, this curvature has to be negative in order for it to be a stable equilibrium. Here I've explicitly written in that negative. So really, I guess I should have an absolute value around that. OK, but um, we can relate this force to position through Newton's second law. Newton's second law is f equals ma. Of course, a is the second derivative of the displacement. So I can get an expression entirely in terms of displacement. I can say that the force, which I can write as a, term of, as a function of displacement, is equal to the acceleration times the mass, which I write as a function of displacement. I, this is a differential equation in x. Right, so I can solve this. couple things before I do. Um, what is this the mass of? That kind of depends on my model. So I'm doing this in a fairly general sense. If I think that this positive charge is a very massive nucleus, it's just fixed in space, and the electron cloud is the negative charge that can move around beside it, then this would be the mass of the electron cloud, or the electron, because that's what's moving. If this is a molecule, where maybe I've got two roughly equal mass well, they were atoms before they became a molecule that are being that are vibrating. If their masses are comparable, then I may need to use the reduced mass of the system. Just the way you have to use the reduced mass of a planetary system to understand the motion of, of uh, the two-body problem in mechanics. Okay, so I'm going to use the, 
letter m and talk about the mass um, as if there's only one thing that's moving. Um, if that's not the case and you want to generalize this, you have to use the reduced mass. Not so relevant today for understanding the basic picture of what's going on, though. Uh, well, it becomes more complicated. You know, in classical mechanics, you can't solve the three-body problem. So it just becomes... Uh, you may be able to separate it into normal modes and, and solve it, but um, for the purposes of today's discussion, it's, we're just going to deal with two, and we're going to treat it as just a single mass, single scalar parameter. Okay, well... We know that this should be a simple harmonic oscillator, the way we've described it. If we displace it from equilibrium, we've got a quadratic well, and it's going to oscillate back and forth. So it makes sense to look for solutions to the motion of this, or the position of this uh, parameter, or the value of this parameter, x, as a function of time, that are oscillatory. Okay, so look like this, some amplitude times cosine omega t plus alpha. Um, we'll find for a number of things that we do that it's easier to use the complex form of, of uh, oscillatory solutions. Okay, so we'll describe this oscillation as a phasor. A phasor is a complex number that represents some real function. Um, we give it this tilde hat on top of a letter to denote that it's a phasor. And the phasor for a simple harmonic function looks like some amplitude times some phase angle. Okay, and the actual function, the actual function as a function of t is going to be the real part of that phasor. Okay, so if I describe this oscillation as a times e to the, this probably should say i omega t plus alpha, then the real part of e to the i omega t plus alpha is just cosine omega t plus alpha. All right, so let me remind you, if that doesn't sound familiar, of Euler's formula. For complex numbers, says that e to the i alpha equals cosine alpha plus i sine alpha. So if you have an expression that looks like cosine of something, you can call that the real part of e to the i something. And that's what we're doing with our phaser. There's a couple reasons you might want to do that. One is that um, when we model light as a phasor, as the light propagates, we have to account for different things that happen to it. And when you're doing math, um, if you have sine or cosine functions and you have to, say, square it or multiply it by another sine or cosine, um, it generally becomes a little bit tedious and you have to consult trigonometric identities to figure out how cosine A times cosine of B turns into a sinusoidal oscillation, whereas if we have an exponent, when you multiply two exponents, you just add their exponents 
much easier. That's one reason that we do it. Another reason we deal with these phasors, we'll see today, is that solving differential equations is a lot easier. So if we assume that we have a solution to the simple harmonic oscillator that, uh, we, that is oscillatory and we write as some amplitude times some, uh, some phase which is changing in time, then we can, um, we can simplify our, our solution to the differential equation. The reason we can make some simplifications is because of a few properties of phasers for plane waves. Here I've written the phasor notation that should be a, uh, actually that's fine. This is an expression for a plane wave. It's got k dot r plus omega t as the oscillating phase and an amplitude of E naught. You'll notice that if I take the time derivative of this function, the time derivative, uh, only de the time dependence only depends on this term. So when I take the time derivative of e to the i omega t, the i times omega come out. And what remains is the original function. So I can say that the time derivative of a phasor is i times omega times the phasors. So I've written that right there. And when I take the spatial derivative, I get a similar thing happening. I get i times k coming out when I take the derivative and the original function remaining so that I can just write this, uh, this del operator as ik and I can write the d by dt operator as i omega. And that turns all my differential equations into ordinary equations. makes them very easy to solve. So we'll see that. We'll need that today in order to get through the math. A couple other things about phasors. I already mentioned that we're going to deal with the product of well, the electric field squared when we determine the intensity. When we've got the product of two quantities squared, and we've got the product of two quantities. If they're expressed as phasors, and we want to take the time average, the time average, say, of function A and B, what that means is you multiply function A times function B. Okay, so A cosine omega t plus alpha, let that be function A. B cosine omega t plus beta, let that be function B. If we multiply them together and want to take their time average, what we do is we integrate that product over some length of time over which the time over which we're averaging, and then we divide by the length of time we integrated. Right? That's just the definition of, a, of an average. In terms of phasor amplitude, we take one half the real quantity of A times B star. Okay, not A times B. We can take A times B star or A star times B in one half. Okay, and I can show that this is the case, which is worthwhile phasor practice, by starting with this expression um, for the time average. 
And I will replace these quantities by their phasors. So this looks like uh, A times e to the i omega t plus alpha. It's the phasor representation of A. The phasor representation of B is B e to the i omega t plus beta. Actually, before I replace those, let me just do this the original way without using phasor notation. Uh, cosine of omega t plus alpha times cosine of omega t plus beta. Um, if I have to do that, that's going to look like 1 half times the cosine of the sum of these things, which would be 2 omega t plus alpha plus beta plus cosine of the difference of the arguments. So I have omega t plus alpha minus omega t plus beta, maybe alpha minus beta. That's one of those trig identities that is not necessarily easy to remember or recall, which is why we avoid doing it this way. Now, I can do this integral without necessarily doing all the math by observing a few things. First is that this function is varying rapidly in time, assuming that omega, the angular frequency, is large. If it's an optical frequency, then it is varying rapidly relative to the integration time. Okay, so the period is short compared to the integration time. This term isn't varying at all in time. It's constant. Okay, so when I average this out over a long period of time, what's the average of a oscillating function averaged over all time? Yeah, so this is going to average out to zero. This is independent of time, so I can just take it out of the, the integral, and I'm integrating 1 half. from 0 to t, which gives me t over t. It gives me 1 half cosine of alpha minus beta as the time average of, al of a and b. OK, so given that that's the answer for what is the time average of a and b, let's look at how we express that in terms of phasors. If we express that just as the real part of phasor A times phasor B, that's not what we get. right? Because the real part of phasor A times phasor B, A times B is what I have up here. That would be e to the i 2 omega t plus alpha plus beta. If I try to just multiply A times B as phasors, I don't get the time averaging. And I don't get the difference between alpha and beta in my argument. I get the sum. Okay, So that is not the way I calculate it. Um, if instead I try the real part 
one half the real part of A times B star, complex conjugate of B. Let's see what I get. So A e to the i omega t plus alpha. And then B star means if B is a real value, then I just have to change the sign on this i right there. And now I have an e to the plus i omega t times an e to the minus i omega t. So those omega t's cancel. And I have an e to the i alpha times e to the minus i beta. So I get e to the i alpha minus beta. And sure enough, when I take the real part of that, I'm left with just the cosine of alpha minus beta, which is the time average that I got when I explicitly calculated it using integration of the trigonometric functions. Okay, so that's just a general rule. If you're multiplying two functions and you want to take the time average, which we do a lot in optics, um, multiplying two electric fields to get their intensity, it's one half the real part of the phasor of one times the complex conjugate of the phasor of the other. Since multiplication commutes, it doesn't matter whether I have A times B or B times A. And so it doesn't matter whether I take the complex conjugate of the first or the second term. So can, I can do A times B star, or I can do A star times B. Yeah, well, the average, if they're both oscillating functions, the average of each of them is zero. Yep. OK, so let's do that for our um, simple harmonic oscillator here. Here is the function, or the equation that I want to solve. It's the equation of motion. And let's assume a solution that is of this form. So the, the displacement. The displacement of my charge, for instance, is some equilibrium value plus some amplitude of oscillation that's oscillating at some frequency. Okay, so I'm going to take this and plug it into each term for x. So I'm going to have minus v double prime. And then when I plug that directly in, I'm going to get x naught plus delta x e to the i omega t. And I'll set that equal to m times the second derivative of my phasor. Okay, So there's two terms. The first one has this is the equilibrium position. It's not dependent on time. So when I take the derivative, that goes away. The second term, when I take the derivative of this, it's a phasor. Right? So I just get the i omega coming out. When I take the derivative twice, I get the i omega coming out twice. 
So I get an i omega squared times delta x e to the i omega t. I missed a term here. Minus x naught on the left. I plugged in this phasor for x, and I got an x naught plus delta x. And then I forgot to add in this minus x naught. So these x naughts cancel out. And I have an expression. write like this. It has a few terms that cancel. So delta x e to the i omega t. And I get, for example, if I want to solve this expression for omega, that omega is equal to the square root of v double prime over m. If you remember, v double prime, we said, was the spring constant. So I could write that as k over m, which might be a more familiar form if you're thinking about mechanics in a simple harmonic oscillator. This frequency we'll call the natural frequency of the oscillator. And that's just the natural frequency it's going to oscillate back and forth at. Okay, so we could have quoted this solution without having gone through the math. Okay, but it's useful to go through the math here. So we're going to go through the math when we add damping and when we add a driving force to it. And in the process, we're going to use the same idea of using the phasor notation, turning our differential equation into an algebraic equation and coming up with solutions. Any questions on how we did that? Okay, let's take like a two-minute break. Uh, not too long, just enough to refresh ourselves. And then we'll... Uh, We'll do that for the system with damping. Um, well, when I, wrote, when I wrote out the Taylor series here, the equilibrium term we said was just the average, the constant energy. The first order term was zero at equilibrium. So the next order term told us how much the restoring force was when we pushed away from it. So in that sense, it's, it's a spring constant. I may not have actually said that. I meant to say that. I may not have said it. What's that? Well, by definition, I mean, if you say for a simple harmonic oscillator, you can, in terms of what you define as a spring constant, if you define the natural frequency, it's square root of k over m. So here it's just, in our case, it's v double prime. Therefore, v double prime is a spring constant. Well, the spring constant is defined as the ratio between the applied force or, and the, or the restoring force and the displacement. 
right? Therefore, it is the second, it is the second term in the Taylor series expansion of the energy. Yeah, because I add things, so the numbers don't match exactly. There's no real easy way for me to avoid that other than not adding things to my slides, but I always add things when I or add things or take them out when I'm looking at them the day before. I will um, do this though. Uh, once the once we're done with the chapter and we're a couple weeks past and any slide corrections have been submitted, I will repost the slides in their final form so that if you want to re-download them, say before the test or when the class is over or at some later date, you'll have the most recent copy. Okay, so that was a fairly simplistic uh, description of what goes on uh, when this molecule is displaced from equilibrium. Um, it didn't assume that it was being driven. It was just a matter of displacing it, letting go, and this says it will oscillate back and forth with this particular frequency. Um, let's consider now first what happens when there's damping, which means you pull the atom or distort it in some fashion, let go, it's going to oscillate, but eventually it will return to its original state. Let's consider what happens when we have damping. What might cause an atom to return to its original state if you excite it? What's that? Emission, yeah. So what happens is we're not talking about the quantum mechanical picture today, but if we excite the atom, it will eventually, one of the things it can do is emit a photon and then decay to its steady state. So if it's able to do that, there's some damping mechanism. There are other ways it can damp. It can bump into its neighbors. We call that collisional damping. Um, and we'll see that there's actually other ways, including things like uh, what we call optical molasses, which is you take a bunch of lasers and you slightly detune them from the atomic resonance and you can actually uh, use the Doppler shifted uh, frequency to push on the atom in whatever direction it's moving and damp it that way and that's the mechanism that was used that to uh, produce Bose-Einstein condensates for the first time and it's basically the reason that uh, so the 97 Nobel Prize went to Steve Chu at Stanford for developing that technique. Okay. Um, so let's add a velocity-dependent damping force. Uh, damping forces generally are treated as velocity-dependent. So like wind resistance is a damping force that's velocity-dependent. Um, this was our equation of motion, or this was our equilibrium for the forces. There was some force due to the potential energy curve, which is essentially the spring. The fact that this uh, atom is like a spring and tries to return to equilibrium that's this term. And now we add a velocity-dependent term. Okay, so x dot is the velocity. Gamma is our, or gamma times m is our proportionality constant between force and velocity. And it's negative, meaning that the force always opposes the direction of motion. So that's what you have for damping. If it was positive, you'd have uh, positive reinforcement. You'd have exponential buildup instead of decay. So we want to find solutions to force, which is this, equals mass times acceleration. So we just did that before, but we didn't have this term. We want to add that term. 
we can use the same trial solution and see what we get. And that may seem a little bit surprising. We have a different equation of motion. How come we can use the same solution and get anything useful? So just keep that question in the back of your head. And once we arrive at our solution, we'll see what's different and why it's actually physically a different solution, even though it started as the same thing. Okay, so same thing. Let's plug in this phaser here for x. So I've got x naught plus delta x e to the i omega t minus x naught minus gamma m x dot. So x dot is the derivative. Every time I take the derivative of this phasor, this constant term doesn't come into play, and I just take an i omega out front. And that equals to the same right side that I had last time. cancel a number of things. These x naughts cancel out. The equilibrium position doesn't matter. Every term has a delta x e to the i omega t. So that all cancels out. And I can write this as minus v double prime minus uh, gamma m times i omega. Equals minus m omega squared. And let me again solve this for omega. This is a quadratic equation. So the solutions aren't going to be as straightforward as what I had before, but they're trivial to find. If you like, you can check that if gamma goes to 0, it means if we turn off the damping, this will recover the equation that I had before, the expression that I had before. So this term goes away, this term goes away, and I get uh, 2 times square root of v prime over this. Uh, well, yeah, I get square root of v double prime over the square root of m. I recover what I had before. Okay, So this is consistent with what I had, but it's different in that this is, well, let me, let me write this in terms of omega naught. Let me say that uh, v double prime equals m omega naught squared. That was from my previous solution and my definition of what the natural frequency is. And I'll divide term by term by this 2m. 
So this looks like uh, minus gamma over 2 all squared plus omega naught squared. So all I've done is written V double prime in terms of the mass and omega naught. Omega naught was a defined parameter. So how is this thing different, sort of conceptually? Or how is this function, remember the function, the functional form that I was trying was here. And let me write that out. T. So there's my expression for the displacement of the matter, the displacement of the charge or the separation of the molecule or whatever, whatever form of the matter I'm looking at. What's different here? We have a decay because this term here is imaginary. When it gets multiplied by the i, we have a negative, right? So we can write that as a decay. And I'll separate that out now to explicitly indicate that it's a decay. Okay, so there's my solution. It is still oscillatory in that it has this oscillatory term. But the amplitude now is exponentially decaying in time. Okay, so I displace the charge from equilibrium. I let go, and it's going to slosh back and forth. But it's going to decay in time and eventually return to uh, its original position. So as t goes to infinity, the amplitude becomes 0. Its position is its initial position. Neil. So how do you like create gamma? Like how do you like gamma is a small number, so it's not like a big number. Okay, we'll see in a second um, how we convert this gamma into something that's measurable. But for the moment, um, you could imagine exciting the oscillation. If there was some way to observe the amplitude of the oscillation, you could just measure once it's rung down to one over e of its, its value its initial value to have gamma. Okay. And so for us, it's going to look something like you excite a population of atoms into some excited state, and then you wait until some fraction of them have decayed back to their ground state. And as they decay, that's this exponential decay there. So there's sort of a, a preview of where we're going with this. Any other questions? Okay, so the next step now, we've modeled the matter. And now we have to add the driving force to it. So there's our picture of the decay. Um, I'll just mention that the frequency at which the oscillation occurs is not the natural frequency. It's actually shifted. In the case of small damping, if gamma is small compared to omega naught, that shift may be negligible. But uh, it's worth mentioning. 
We're going to add now that driving electric field to this matter. So now we're dealing with the interaction. Not just the light, not just the matter, but their interaction. And so we do the same thing we did before. We start with our equilibrium forces on the molecule. There's some spring restoring force due to the molecule itself. There's some damping, which we just described, but now there's some driving force. So if we're dealing with a charge, say we're dealing with an electron, it has a charge E. The force on that charge due to an external electric field is just the magnitude of the field times the charge. Remember, that's the definition of what an electric field is. An electric field is the force per unit charge on an object. So this is the charge of our object, and this is the electric field that we defined earlier. And the polarization of that electric field is in the x direction. So it's the same direction that uh, we're considering the motion of the atom in. Then this is the full force that acts on that, that charge. That has to equal mass times displacement, mass times acceleration. Okay, so we just add one more term into our expression. That term is a, a constant in terms of x. So let me see if I can. Now I'm not going to erase that. But I am going to um, start from the second line up here rather than go through and write out every single term. So on the left-hand side, once I canceled, I don't want to cancel terms, I'm sorry. When I substitute in my trial expression for x, I get these terms here. The new term here is the driving force, which I'm writing as a phaser. Okay, I'm writing it as a phaser, and um, I'm going to do a couple things here. I'm going to set phi naught equal to 0. I'm free to define whenever, whatever time I want to be time t equals 0. So I'm going to do that such that phi naught is equal to 0. This is the force that's responsible for driving my, my uh, oscillator. So before I was saying I take my oscillator, I, I displace it, and then I let go and watch it go back and forth. Right? And obviously the time t equals 0 is when I let go. Here I'm not doing that. I'm just considering the oscillator there, and I've got this electric field that's shaking it back and forth. Right? So it has to respond at the frequency I'm driving it at. Right? If it's a linear system, it has to respond at the frequency I'm driving it at. If I'm shaking it at a certain rate, it can't 
respond at a different rate. It's always got to follow that. So these omegas, the omega of the, the wave that's driving this is going to be the same as the omega at which it responds. Now, I can't cancel my delta x times e to the i omega t the way I did before because it doesn't appear in this term. That's why I wasn't able to start with my second line when I rewrote this equation. So I can't just cancel delta x, so instead let me solve for it. Let me solve for delta x and get a function for the amplitude of the oscillation as a function of time and all these other quantities. So I have delta x times... um, Yeah, I can cancel this. Um, I think that's the same thing. I'm going to do the same thing I did before, which is I'm going to replace V double prime with, um, what do I call it, M omega naught squared. play around with the order of the terms a little bit to get the expression that I have on the board for the amplitude of the phasor displacement. That's a phasor. So the fact that it has an imaginary part here just means that when I take the real part of this function, I need to properly account for that. So I have a a complex quantity here in this fraction. And so it's useful to rationalize, or not rationalize, but make the uh, denominator real. So I would do that by multiplying the denominator by by its complex conjugate. Right? When I do, I'll have this squared plus this squared. I think for clarity's sake, I'm going to need to do this on the board. So when I multiply this by the complex conjugate, um, first of all, I'm going to bring all these m's into the numerator.
So one thing I could do is I can multiply the top and the bottom by the same number to get its complex conjugate. Or another way of, of um, making this expression a little clearer, which actually I think is the one that's going to be a little simpler, I'm going to write this denominator as some, some magnitude times some phase. Okay, so in the complex plane, this number, this complex number, has a real part that's omega naught squared minus omega squared. And it has an imaginary part that's gamma. So that number has a magnitude that I can find just from the vector sum. Right? So that vector sum is just the hypotenuse of a triangle with sides omega naught squared minus omega squared and gamma squared. And its angle is just given by the arctangent of gamma over omega naught squared minus omega squared. And in slides, I call that angle beta, so I'll call it beta here too as well. If I do that, then it makes it really easy to find what this phasor represents because I can treat that as its amplitude. And 1 over e to the i beta, I can write as e to the minus i beta in the numerator. And then the amplitude of e naught, I'll plug in here. And the phase angle, I'll plug in there. So if, if e represents e naught times e to the i phi, that's my expression for the amplitude of the electric field. You can treat it in terms of uh, the amplitude in the phase. And when I take the real part of this expression, it's this term that I've circled. That's the magnitude of the expression. And then cosine of what's up here. Over here. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. So everywhere there's a gamma, there'd be an omega. Thanks. Okay. So this phasor represents this function. And essentially, if we started with a cosinusoidal wave oscillating at omega t, there just gets a phase shift. 
the phase shift is calculated down here in terms of the damping. If there's no damping, that phase shift is zero. And the, the driving wave just moves the, the charge along with it. If there's a damping, there's a, there's a lag. Um, and then this is the magnitude of that motion. And so what you can see, for example, is if omega, it's the frequency that we're driving it at, that's the frequency of the light, equals omega naught, that's the natural frequency of the matter, then the numerator will be minimized, or the denominator is minimized, quantity will be maximized. So you get the largest displacement when you drive it at resonance. Okay? When you're off resonance, you get less displacement. The light interacts with the matter efficiently when it drives it at its natural resonant frequency. It does not act efficiently or does not drive it when it's off resonance. Which is another way of saying that material is transparent when the light frequency does not match up to the um, resonant frequencies or the transition level uh, frequencies of the matter. And it's essentially opaque or absorbing when those frequencies are close to each other. So what we'll do next time is describe, we didn't quite get to the point of describing the shape of uh, this function, but we'll describe the shape of this function, not in terms of the displacement, but the actual power absorbed, and then relate that to cross-section and absorption coefficient. Neil? No. Um, if you described it as complex, then, I mean, by definition, it's the constant proportionality between the uh, velocity and the force. If you have a complex const constant of proportionality, that's saying, um, uh, yeah, and essentially it's saying it's not in the direction, the force is not in the direction of velocity, so it's no longer a damping force.